Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name's Karen, and I'm here with my co-host, Nathan. Hello. Nathan, what's new in your world these days? Well, for the audience who doesn't know, we are pregnant with our fourth child. Woo! What in the heck? Just saying that makes me feel old and... Like right now I'm learning Latin with Nate, you know, we're doing the Duolingo thing on the app. For you know? anybody who's curious, that's his son who is seven, six? Yeah, seven. Yeah. But he's Casual. in a classical school. Like you learn Latin in the classical education. Anyway, we're learning Latin and there's this word that is kind of like the head of the family called paterfamilias, right? Oh, you're the paterfamilias. And I feel like I'm the paterfamilias. But that's like, that's like the godfather or something. I don't know. I feel old. You I have are. four kids. You are old. What the heck? What the heck? Anyway, we're having a little girl. Woo! So it's going to be Nate and Miles and Jules and Joy. There's a quick story about this. Should I tell it? I like it. Okay, cool. So last summer, so summer of 2020, I'm putting Nate and Miles to bed. And Miles says, Daddy, I want another little baby. And I'm like, well, okay, daggum, all right. And so we go back and forth with the boys like, hey, do you want a brother or a sister? And they're going back and forth on that. And then finally, Nate, my seven-year-old, looks at me very matter-of-factly and is like, oh, we're definitely having a girl and her name will be Joy. And I was like, oh, snap. That's a very specific. (laughs) (laughs) So I go tell Margaret and we go to bed. And then the next morning she wakes up and goes, hey, I'm kind of wigging out because, and I didn't tell you this last night, but I've been having this like since of this little girl and her name is joy and it was just like weird (laughs) (laughs) so as any good biblical theologian right you're like hey it feels like the lord is speaking Mm -hmm. to us but just because you feel like it doesn't mean that that's reality so we you know we're just praying about it we continue to pray about it and then of course we weren't pregnant at the time and we weren't planning on getting pregnant, but... These things happen. <laughs> but, you know, we're active in those areas. So the Lord was like, you know what? I'm going to bless you guys with another one. And then we just found out that it is a little girl. And her name, and her will, name be will be Joy. Joy. Yeah. So, Yay, Jesus! Really cool. Isn't that crazy? It's wild. So, yeah, we're, we're grateful. Blessed, for sure. Absolutely. Well... Cool story. We're happy for you. Congrats. Yeah, thanks. So, Nathan, what are we doing today? Yeah, we're going to continue our conversation with Gary. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, we encourage you to do that. But uh, we're going to keep talking about Dallas Willard and his life and influence on so many. We hope you guys enjoy the rest of this conversation. We are back this week with Gary Moon, who is the author of the Dallas Willard biography, Becoming Dallas Willard. And uh, Gary served at Westmont College for a long time and still helps out with some of the stuff there, but is now living on the East Coast, closer to family. And so he is calling in all the way from Georgia. So, Gary, thanks for joining the conversation again. I appreciate it. I look forward to it. So we've been talking about Dallas Willard. And just to remind everybody, like, who in the world was this guy? Because some people know that name, but probably a lot of you are like, wait, you know, Dallas who? You know? And so Dallas was a scholar, a philosopher, and the chair of philosophy at USC for a long time. He was at USC for 40 plus years, I believe. But he's probably more well-known in kind of popular Christian circles for being the author of books like The Divine Conspiracy, The Spirit of the Disciplines, Hearing God, Renovation of the Heart, stuff like that, that he wrote to push forward 
a lot of these kind of major ideas that he was really trying to champion in the church and became a really, really significant voice and pen for the church in the 21st century. And so that's who Dallas Willard was. So that's kind of the broad, like, who is Dallas Willard? But as far as just the personal side of it, Gary, you knew Dallas for what sounds like almost 30 years. And we were talking earlier just about some of the Dallas-isms or uh, quips or quotes or just popular things that he was known for saying. And so why don't you just run us through some of those just to try to give us a kind of personal touch for who this guy was. Yeah, that's one of the things that people have been around Dallas are uh, kind of taken by. He would just have a way of dropping uh, these little cognitive time bombs into conversations <laughs> and you would, you would think about it and then you just would keep thinking about it. I mean, he would, he would say things. Uh, one influential thing for me, for sure, was don't seek to be a speaker. Seek to have something to say. Mm. I mean, I love that. Or what God gets out of your life is the person that you become. Mm. Um, or simply managing sin does not lead to the abundant life that Jesus promised. Yeah. Or maybe one of the most quoted, our destiny is to be part of a tremendously creative effort under unimaginably splendid leadership on an inconceivable vast plane of activity with ever more comprehensive cycles of productivity and enjoyment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, that's that's the new heaven and the new earth. I just right? got yeah. chills. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> yeah. Yes, and that it starts now, that, yeah, uh, that yeah, eternity yeah. is now in session. If you want to, because of his belief in the presence of the invisible real, he would say things like, want to go to heaven? Uh, why wait? Go now. Yeah. Uh, yeah he good. meant, you know, stepping into John 17, 3, mm-hmm. the only time Jesus defines eternal life knowing, being in an interactive, transforming friendship with the Trinity, basically, Mm. or that eternal living is knowing God. That was, uh, I think, one of my favorite mind blowers he would drop into conversations. Yeah, that's so good, man. Yeah, people think about eternal life, and they, probably most people, and maybe a lot of you listening to this, you automatically think about the the duration of that, like, oh, I'm going to go to heaven, like the foreverness of it as opposed to the the qualitative side of eternal life. In other words, actually, what is it in its essence? And like you alluded to in John 17, you know, there's two primary Greek words for knowing something. One is oida, which is just kind of like a base, like I know that this is a bottle of water. I know I'm listening to a podcast. I just baseline knowledge. The other one, the other Greek word is uh, gnosko, and it's a relational knowing that requires an interpersonal relatability. And that's the word that's used in John 17, 3, that this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And it sounds like Dallas, whatever that, whatever that looks like, whatever that is, he, he had found it and was living in it. You think about anything that you know, you know it through interaction with it, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, whether it's a, a spouse or a tree, or the Trinity. It's that uh, what you did, the uh, Gnosko, the knowing through interaction. Yeah, that's good. And that was. It's just almost that simple. He believed that the invisible, real, is well, especially as it relates to the kingdom and the Trinity, is here. Why this is for both of y'all? Why do you think we have so much trouble believing that today? Why is that such a mountain to climb for us? Because we're not interacting with God in in a way that's meaningful, or we're too distracted, or we don't even know that that's possible. What's the barrier for 
Christians today? Like, why was his ideas about that so profound? I think it's so countercultural. I mean, as uh, especially the last, uh, I mean, since the Enlightenment and since modernism and so forth, it's just become progressively, especially in the university, if you can't see it or measure it, it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so it may boil down to this at one level, that, uh, that we are, humans are dust and divinity, both. And it's so popular in culture to get rid of the, the invisible real, to get rid of the, the spiritual aspect of the person. But Dallas said that's where the real you is, is in the, is in the spiritual element of who you are, more, uh, more so than the physical. Now, he's not promoting some kind of cartoon dualism. It's very incarnational. But I think to answer your question, the best I can answer it, it's when you remove the spiritual, when you remove the invisible real, then this, what he's talking about is, is pretty much lost. And it's not just university. It's getting more and more prevalent in the church. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you said, I think we're just enculturated in it. Mm. I mean, our, our baseline presupposition is one of God is not there. And there's so many assumptions around God is not there that it becomes, even if people aren't consciously aware of the effect that that has on us, the effect is profound. I mean, I can even see that in my own life of like, I can verbalize, oh yeah, God's here, God's here. Like, yeah, Jesus is here with me. Mm -hmm. But the way that I functionally act isn't out of a belief that that is really true. Yeah, right. I, yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. yeah. There's a story, I, I forget exactly where I first heard it, but uh, as far as two ways of a modern and a, a postmodern getting to know a frog. And so the, the modernist captures the frog, kills the frog, cuts it into as many slices as possible, studies it under a microscope. And then the other approach is you put on a wetsuit and you spend a few months hanging out with the frog in a pond and following it around and learning its habits and interacting with it. They're both ways of knowing, mm -hmm. but we've almost pushed aside the way of knowing that is experiential, especially as it relates to our knowing things that are invisible, yeah. like the kingdom and the Trinity. Well, it's interesting, too. We had a conversation with a guy named Mike Heiser, who wrote a book called The Unseen Realm. And basically what he's pushing forward, I think he's right, is this idea that, hey, the actual unseen reality is, like we talked about before, it's more real than the physical world. It's not the physical world is not real, but it is part of something much larger that's going on. And that actually, that presupposition forms the foundation for the entire Scripture. Mm. I mean, that's the world that they lived in. And so it's it's kind of funny getting back to your question, Karen. It's like, hey, why do we struggle with this so much? Because we revere the scriptures, right. but we struggle with the worldview that the scriptures are based on. Right. And so there's inherent tension in mm -hmm. it just by that sheer reality. You know, so what's been kind of mind-blowing and helpful to me lately, and it may not be helpful to anyone else, but just this, I was actually reading it in, um, in an introduction to a, a book on prayer, but the, the person who the introduction was talking about that physics is letting us know that we live in a, a 10 or more dimensional universe. And yeah, all of a sudden a light crazy. bulb went on for me that if, that if that's true, and I think it is true, that, that God not only lives in, but created a 10 dimensional universe. Yeah. And here we are having fallen into a four dimensional uh, yeah. perception of reality. That helps me get what Dallas is offering probably more than anything, the humility of wanting from our perspective of limited 
awareness interacting with reality, mm-hmm. the ten-dimensional God. Yeah. Well, and what's crazy is so Lewis talked about that, and he quotes the Austrian physicist uh, Arthur Schrödinger, who said that at the time he was seeing evidence for seven dimensions, and now obviously it's grown. And the crazy thing is, is like t- it's like ten dimensions, but how many dimensions are there? <laughs> you, you know, like it's a, it's so much bigger than we think it is. And I think that that's what Dallas was tapping into is there's a, there's a humility of we can experience those things because they're real and we need to stay in a posture of, of humility to go, okay, like Romans eight says, we live in a world that has been suppressed by sin. And so uh, living in a posture of being open to, the reality far beyond what we can actually grasp. So that that's a good transition to what I wanted to talk about next. And that is, so let's unpack a little bit more those four major questions that Dallas asked. That is, what is real? Who is well off? Who's truly a good person? And how, do you, how does one become a truly good person? So why don't you just kind of cursory go through those and talk about how Dallas's work was really trying to push forward his response to those questions. Yeah, and I think uh, you're getting close to the center of the bullseye from my perspective. If you, if you, So Dallas was known for talking about uh, Jesus' answer, and he, he uh, Dallas liked to remind us that Jesus was actually really smart, and which if you can have some fun with that if you're with a group of people and you ask them to come up with the smartest people that they are aware of that have ever lived. And it's, it's usually, it takes a while before some, if ever, that someone says Jesus. Yeah. Mm. So Jesus, so that was like remind us that, uh, that Jesus was very smart and that Jesus had answers and the Sermon on the Mount in particular was offering answers to the four basic questions that philosophers have asked uh, that you mentioned, Nathan. And interestingly, I think these four questions very much relate to his four concerns, which we talked about last week, but the four questions what is real? And Dallas would say that, well, from Jesus' perspective, Jesus' answer is God and his kingdom. Mm-hmm. That's what you can count on. Yeah. Who was well off? The very different answer from Dr. Jesus is anyone who is participating in an interactive, transforming friendship with the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's living in John 17, 3, knowing the Trinity. Yeah. And given that that is eternal living, the only time Jesus defines eternal life, that's probably about as well off as it gets. Third question, who is a good person? Uh, Anyone who is permeated by love. And how do I become a good person to begin an apprenticeship with Jesus here and now? Mm. It's incredible answers. I I don't know that I could do it off the top of my head, but I sometimes uh, do some teaching where just from the perspective of psychology, I look at what like Skinner would say about those four questions and they're good answers. Mm -hmm. And I look at what Freud go through, what Freud might say about those four questions and they're brilliant answers, but they all pale in comparison to the answers of Dr. Jesus to the four critical questions that philosophers have been trying to answer for millennia. It's funny how Jesus has the answer. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know. He said something about him being the truth. Yeah. So, uh, it's like he knew. <laughs> it's like he knew what he was talking about. <laughs> but that, but one of the things that I loved about Dallas that he says a handful of different places, but he's like, as a Christian, you have to come to grips with the fact that Jesus was the smartest person who ever lived. 
And I think you're right. We just, we don't assume that. We don't right? think of him like that. We yeah. have this picture of him being really pale with dark, curly black hair and a lamb on his lap. Yeah, kind of like he's kind of floating him. through life, like, you know. Like an easygoing hippie. Hey, or... Just, just everybody <laughs> chill, calm down, calm down, you know. Yeah. It's like, you know, actually, he had a lot to say. I mean, daggum, the fact that there are four Greco-Roman biographies written on his life very early, you know, in relation to the actual event and that they record so much of his teaching is, is just amazing just from a antiquity standpoint. But the fact that the substance of his message was such that it was so counter everything really. I mean, it was an, it was uh, exposing the fact that the world is upside down. So you have this inversion that Jesus is doing to tell people this is the kingdom kind of life. And Willard understood that. And I think we see that in several stories. I think Nathan has a favorite story from Willard's life in the book. I have a favorite story. I'd love to just like tell those stories and then kind of get at like, hey, Willard understood that Jesus was the smartest person. Willard understood that Jesus was the answer to all these questions. And I think some of these stories kind of help paint that picture. Well, because I think the way you describe it, Gary, is it is that Dallas had a way of pushing past people's, or maybe identifying and exposing people's underlying assumptions about God in a way that I think was really profound. So one of the ones that I loved was where he's having a conversation, I think with a guy named Trevor. Yeah, Trevor Hudson from yeah, South Africa. So why, don't, so why don't you tell us that story? I think the main thing about that story, if if, if we're thinking about the same story, is it that uh, it goes to to God view. And yep. uh, if this is the story you're thinking about that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, well, that's it. well, first of all, Trevor is a wonderful friend. He, uh, a minister from South Africa, when, when we were doing the Renovari Institute and wanted to find someone to teach, in Dallas's place, after Dallas could no longer teach, I mean, Trevor was the person, and he's fantastic. He's done a little uh, jail time with Desmond Tutu and mm-hmm. uh, fighting against apartheid. Um, wow. But so, so Trevor invites Dallas to come to South Africa because he had read a couple of chapters in a book like me, and then invites him to come. And he says to Dallas, "The bad news is we can't afford to put you in a hotel. You need to sleep in the sewing room in our in our small house and." I don't think we can give you any money, but there's lots of work to do. And then, of course, with an invitation like that, Dallas said yes. And, uh, <laughs> but they had lots of conversations. And one of them, Dallas realized that Trevor's God was a bit gloomy yeah. and not, not joyful enough. And that leads to one of Dallas's, I think, favorite things to say about God. Uh, very simple. He would say, don't ever let anyone tell you anything bad about God. Uh, as surely as you're thinking something bad about God, you're getting into heresy. Mm. Uh, that God is unbelievably magnificent, unbelievably loving and joyful. Yeah, well, it, it gets to, I think, again, the difference between knowing something, like having a intellectual knowledge about it. Yes, I know that God exists. But then experiencing Him, those are mm. different things. And as Dallas experiences life, uh, the triune life, and moves deeper into it in his apprenticeship to Jesus, he's beginning to identify in other people's lives, uh, and I'm sure, obviously, in his own as well, but but like, wait a minute, I, it sounds like you think that God is not joyful or happy 
or or loving or whatever it is and uh and that's or, what or present <laughs> or, yeah or even pre- just present period yeah but yeah that that story where you know Trevor is going through kind of the theology of the cross and you know suffering and which is part of it but yeah at the end Alice is you know he's like Trevor is is your God gloomy? <laughs> it's like that just has a way of stopping you in your tracks, you know, because so many of us, I mean, it, you're just like, actually, I haven't thought about it. And now that I am thinking about it, yeah, he kind of is, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, well, I don't think that's what God is like. So it, it kind of a, a parenthesis around that. I mean, you could ask the question, I can hear Dallas saying something like this, that reminding us that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. And while this wasn't part of the conversation with Trevor, I think it's kind of a paraphrase. It's basically saying, Trevor, are you enduring your personal cross because of the joy set before Mm -hmm. you of, of of entering another kind of life? Yeah. I'm just sitting here thinking about that. Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's, that's tuned hitting, back that's in. Hitting, uh, that's hitting uh, maybe a little bit too close to home yeah. for me. Yeah. <laughs> I think I just got really uncomfortable. <laughs> well, now you're just meddling, Gary. Yeah. All right. Next, no, on to the next it. thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, I think that was one of the most profound stories that I read in this book. Uh, but a, yeah. a close second was a story towards the end of Dallas's life where he's been uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer and is. Uh, going to the hospital to get some procedures done. And it says that he was taken away by the nurses and that they honestly just like forgot about they just him. Left him. Yeah. And so he, <laughs> Dallas is sitting on like a hospital bed in some hallway all by himself for hours and nobody's come to find him. And eventually it says Jane walked up to him and looks at him and he's sitting there praying. And so she asked, did you feel abandoned? Were you praying why, God, have you forsaken me? Because at this point, she knows his life is ending and his last moments are few. Yeah. And Dallas yeah. looks up and responds, no, I was thanking God and telling him, even though no one else is here, I know that he has yeah. not abandoned me. Yeah, I love it. And I, that's where I just broke down in tears of having read about his childhood. And like you mentioned in the last podcast, that every year or two, he was moved from house to house. He was... In some ways, I bet he felt unwanted by his own father, Mm -hmm. and he was just pushed around and moved to the next person, that at the end of his life, as he's dying from cancer, that he could sit and say with such integrity, like, I know my God has not abandoned me. That's miraculous. And that's the power of God right there. You just underscored, I think, the best summary for, I mean, as far as why people were so drawn to Willard, you just get got the idea, this person is living what he's talking about. Mm. Well, and you sense that everything that Willard was teaching, because it's showing up in his life, you, you become more and more convinced that it's actually real, that Jesus is actually with him, which uh, gets me to a, a question that... Uh, as Dallas was dying and slipping in and out of consciousness, but he ends up saying, thank you. So why don't you tell us just about the end of his life and how the Lord just graciously introduced him to more reality than we ordinarily see at once. That story I got from conversations with and and the book written by Gary Black. Uh, Gary was with him during that last hours and so forth. And, and I, you know, one of the most Striking things from that story, which is very precious, is that um, as Dallas is dying and Gary's aware of it, 
couple things happen. One, that Gary's aware that Dallas is kind of looking somewhere in the room that's not at him. And his last two words, his last words are thank you, you know. Mm. <laughs> and of course, the, the Eucharist basically means gratitude. It just seems like such a Eucharistic mm. uh, ending. But it also felt from Gary's perspective that he was directing that thank you to a uh, to an unseen presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, a lot of people don't know that Dallas had several topics that he would talk about. It was on the USC website that were uh, kind of surprising to some of his Christian readers in the sense that one of them was basically a sports psychology or, and another was near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. And so he, he had kind of a classic close-to-death experience. Where before he says his last two words are thank you, he says to Gary, says, I wish you could see what I can see. You know, there's um, basically that there are a lot of people here that love us. I mean, sorry, I have like chills just thinking about that. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah, just that he was able to not only speak these words, but to believe them in a way that I don't know that I've seen many people believe. And so it's very evident from... uh, you're writing that anybody who interacted with him learned something from him. And so, Gary, you've probably spent, what, hundreds of hours <laughs> researching Dallas, spending time with Dallas, reading Dallas's works. And so what have you personally learned from being his friend and from reading his work? How have you been shaped by him? Well, I'll answer that. I'm just going to back up this one quick step as far as I was thinking. What are the, if I had to reduce it, to the couple of things that seem the most important uh, to, in, that I've learned that I think other people learned that have been around him. One is that life in the kingdom is a here and now reality. And the other thing, he <laughs> radically redefined uh, salvation itself. Mm-hmm. That may sound borderline heretical, but in no way do I think it is. I think he's returning. Yeah, I think good. one of his great contributions is returning our modern view of what the early church meant by salvation, of what it meant in the days of the early church. He was very well aware that sozo means healing. The word for salvation yeah. also yeah, means right. healing. Yeah. And he, 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 like the early church, I think, helped to put salvation as much at home in the hospital where that healing happens, uh, healing through interactive, transforming friendship with the Trinity as in a courtroom. And it's both. Obviously, they're, they're juridical elements, but he emphasized, as the early church did, the, the healing and hospital elements of salvation as our journey with and toward union with God. First and foremost, I think it's that. And on a personal note, it's hard to even start. He... Um, Anything, Dallas would say that he, he never had a career. He had a Korean. And I think looking back on it in the Korean of what I would call my career, almost everything's been influenced by Dallas. Um, I'm a psychologist and I've done a lot of thinking about the integration of psychology and theology. No one has helped me more with that than, uh, than reading Dallas. I mean, spiritual formation as both, you know, in experience and in, in teaching, 90% of any thoughts I've had about that have come from Dallas's thinking. Anything that I've written, I would say that if I'm ever speaking to a group, 80% of the time it's saying something that was inspired by <laughs> Dallas. Um, so it's, it's, you know, in just about every conceivable way, he's influenced my life, in, including looking to the 
home life as kind of a laboratory, mm-hmm. one of the best laboratories for, for this playing itself out for us, you know, learning how this works as far as living life with God in the midst of, you know, normal family day, life. Day in and out, yep. So even as you're talking, I just have this image of like a ripple effect that Dallas has left, that he dropped a really big stone into a pond and it's just continuing to ripple. And so, Gary, how would you describe Dallas's legacy? Yeah, uh, I, you know, I think I would just circle back if I had to do it in one sentence, something I think I've said that he introduced first century Christianity to the church today. This is a story, I forget if it's in the biography or not, but uh, Dallas, besides teaching, uh, you know, in the philosophy department at USC, I think it was 26 summers, he taught in the D-Men program, Dr. Ministry program for Fuller and a class in ministry and in spirituality. And um, I sat in on three of them and we filmed one of them. And he would, he, let's say on average, you would have 25 to 30 ministers in the room from probably 10 or more different denominational backgrounds. And I'm going to paraphrase, but basically the first of the 10 days would begin something like, he wouldn't say it this directly, but something in, in essence, he's saying, everything that you've thought about salvation is probably wrong. Let me, let, let's, let's, <laughs> let's look at it again. And 10 yeah. days later, as opposed to being run off the grounds as a heretic, it always ends with a standing ovation. Yeah. That needs to be thought through for you get hundreds of ministers and you basically say, let me explain salvation to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they applaud on their feet at the end. That, that's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes call Dallas a, one of his legacies as being a reformer. And in this interview, I, I feel free to drift into, into hagiography where I didn't feel free. And I don't think I did that in the biography. Uh, so it's kind of a pleasant uh, thing to be able to <laughs> slip into that a little bit. Yeah, but I, I have sometimes said that time will tell if Willard proves to be as much of a reformer as Luther was. Mm-hmm. That sounds like way over the top, and it might be. However, you think about what I just said, 25, 26 years of saying to hundreds of ministers, what you've thought about salvation may well be wrong. Let me explain it to you. And and you get applause. That's that's a big deal. Yeah. Well, and those guys, having been influenced by Willard, are teaching others, mm-hmm. and that has a downline type effect. Yeah, I, I would I would say that it's safe to say that Willard has in, inspired well dozens of speakers and writers, and literally through the interpreters of Willard, I would say I would think it's conservative to say at least two hundred plus books. Oh, yeah. oh, one of them in my favorite story, one of the first people in the Christian world he influenced. He was teaching at USC and pastoring at a little small 50 or 60 member Quaker church that was later described by the pastor as a a marginal failure on any ecclesiastical scale. And um, and so this, uh, which is really this, encouraging to people out there. Yeah. Take that in first. Well, it gets it gets better. Uh, <laughs> so this pastor shows up, first church at a seminary, and he's sort of surprised by how good the Sunday school teaching is. And so the, so the new pastor starts. He's twenty seven years old. He's fresh out of a doctorate degree at Fuller. He starts taking notes, and then he brings a tape recorder and records some of these talks and. And later, after four years at the church, he, he leaves and he's uh, putting all this together. And um, 
he writes a book that a lot of people have heard of, the book of Celebration of Discipline, mm-hmm. very influenced by the thinking of Dallas. And when his book goes viral, he goes back to that little church and says uh, to the one who was teaching the Sunday school, Dallas, you really should write some of this stuff up yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's where the spirit of the disciplines comes from. And of course, the pastor was Richard Foster. He was one of the dozens who Dallas influenced. I love it. Yeah, And actually in... I think it may be the preface of that book, or it's if it's not the preface, it's early on in it. Richard talks about how Dallas was just constantly moving among people, always shepherding and loving and teaching. And as I'm sitting here just listening to you, my primary thought is, man, what a blessing. Mm-hmm. What a blessing that Jesus gave to you mm-hmm. to be Dallas's friend. And I'm sure, you know, if Dallas was still here, I'm, I'm sure he would say, a similar thing about you, for someone to incarnate so much of what is actually real and to walk alongside of as we participate in one another's discipleship and apprenticeship to Jesus as students of the Master. I'm grateful to have gleaned wisdom from from Dallas. I'm grateful that you did the work to put this book together, Becoming Dallas Willard. It definitely helped me. I consumed it quickly <laughs> and uh, was really encouraging to me. You told it was almost was disrespectful. I mean, I took, you know, 10 hours a week for five years to write it and you read it in one day. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, but it was a good day. How about that? <laughs> hey Gary, can I ask you one last question before we wrap up? Sure. All right. What do you miss the most about Dallas? Oh, that's um, <laughs> that while God and the Trinity are part of an invisible reality you can talk to, he no longer is. So just in, you know, when questions come up and things come up and you think, oh, I wonder what Dallas would say, or you like to ask him a question and you just, you just can't for a while. That's, that, that would be it. You said it right though. You can't for a while. Yeah. The day is coming. Yeah. And I, I think to to just to honor Dallas, I think I would again say that the life that Dallas lived as an example is truly someone who's like, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. That ultimately yeah. I think, you know, if he's sitting here, he'd probably be like, Hey, you know, guys, it's all about Jesus. Mm. It's all about the entering into and remaining in the triune life and and so, you know, it's amazing. I think the people who have taught me and have mentored me the best are the ones who ultimately, in my relationship with them, they get smaller and smaller <laughs> because Jesus is getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. And nice. so I think that that's ultimately where probably the greatest compliment, at least that I can pay Dallas, as somebody who's been influenced by his writing and, and then has been deeply influenced by others who knew him, would just be like, hey, man, thank you for loving Jesus, because now I'm loving Jesus more. Well said and quite a compliment. Well, Gary, thanks for your time, brother. Again, I would encourage everybody, please, <laughs> like, just for your own benefit, go pick up this book and read it, Becoming Dallas Willard. In there, Gary unpacks the life of a, uh, a life well-lived. Mm-hmm. So thanks again for your time, Gary. We really appreciate it. Thank you both, Nathan, Karen. Enjoyed the conversations. Thank you guys for listening to the Equipping Podcast. We hope that this resource is helpful for you to encourage and challenge and sharpen you on issues that matter. And so if it is that, then we would encourage you to help us get the word out by 
posting it on social media, telling your friends about it. Go to iTunes, leave us a rating, Google Play, all that jazz. And uh, that, that stuff does help. It helps quite a bit, actually. So if you don't mind you know, taking 30 to 60 seconds to do that, we'd really appreciate it. If you have any questions for us or you just want to say hi, then email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. And we hope you tune in next time. Peace. Bye. <laughs> that was like a bye that was like a uh, like you breathed it. Bye. Bye. Baby. Bye. Bye. Baby. Bye. 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 Bye.